putting it all together. We've come a long way. We have explored each of the essential virtues, and now we kind of want to go back and get an overview of where we have been and how they work together and what this means for our Christian walk. That's why we call this integrity, putting it all together. And we want to start out by looking at uh, core values. And if you'll notice on the chart, I've grouped Peter's essential virtues into three logical categories of commitment and courage and compassion. And these core values summarize the emphasis of the virtues in each of the three columns. Values are things that we think are important, things that we care about. And I've tried to illustrate these core values by this illustration of a column. And it shows the relationship of how they work together. Commitment to Christ forms the base of the column. It's the foundation, the groundwork for Christian character. It is that, as we have seen, that wholeheartedness of the Christian's life. It establishes Christ as the center of my life and everything else is to be subordinate to him. And then we come to courage for Christ, which is the center support in that column. It is the strength and the boldness and the virility of the Christian character. I call it the backbone of Christian character. Or we could say it is the brave-heartedness of the Christian's life. And these are those God-enabled disciplines that provide the staying power for the commitment. And then lastly, we have compassion like Christ, which is that beautiful capital on the top of a column. It is this compassion that is the trademark of the Christian character, the tender-heartedness of the Christian's life. And, and these two virtues of brotherly kindness and love are the crowning virtues of Peter's list. And together, these three values of commitment and courage and compassion form a character with integrity. So we probably need to ask ourselves, what is integrity? For most of us, I think the thing that comes to our mind is that integrity has something to do with honesty. But let me ask you a question. Is Does not integrity in, entail more than that? For this reason, let's let's say that we have a man who is sleeping with another woman who is not his wife. But he's honest with her about it. He tells her that this is what he's doing. Perhaps she's doing the same thing. And she's honest with him about it. Do we say that he has integrity? No, of course not. Because integrity is more than mere honesty. Although honesty is a big part of integrity. Or is integrity being true to myself? For example, this is what uh, the homosexual agenda will say is that we we just have to be true to ourselves. This is what we are. And of course, we know biblically that that's not the case. But is integrity more than just being true to ourselves? I think a way to think through that one is, let's say that you are visiting a friend in the hospital. He's been in there for an extended stay. And you've been there all day long with your friend and just decide to get up and leave the room and take a walk around the uh, hallways of the hospital, just a little change of scenery. And as you're kind of mindlessly walking among these halls, you find yourself in a portion of the hospital that you've never been in before. And uh, behind a couple of closed doors at the end of the hallway, uh, 
you hear a conversation going on behind those doors. And somebody is very exercised and is saying something like this. I am too, Napoleon. Now go get my horse. And the other person who he's talking with is just as animated and he says, you are not Napoleon, you are Hannibal and I brought your elephant. Now, what part of the hospital would you think you're in at that moment? Well, you're in the psychiatric ward or you're right outside the psychiatric ward. Because both of these men are out of touch with reality, but both of them are being true to themselves as they see it. So like we learned earlier when we talked about adding to our faith knowledge, we need an external reference point to teach us these kinds of things. And integrity is from a Latin word, integer. It's where we get the word integer. And we all know from taking mathematics that an integer is a whole number. Well, integrity means wholeness. It means completeness. And certainly honesty is a part of that wholeness. But it means completeness. And what I want us to see is that mature Christianity has integrity because it has these three core values supported by these essential virtues that we've been talking about. So, in these final three sessions, we will summarize what Christian integrity looks like, Christian maturity. And in this session, we're going to look at commitment, and then the last two sessions, of course, we'll look at courage and compassion. So, let's examine the core value of commitment in a little bit more detail. Let's start with a summary statement of commitment that you find at the bottom of the chart. It says, these traits, talking about arete, virtue, this pursuit of the excellence of Christ-likeness and knowledge, these traits produce a whole-hearted disciple who chooses the appeals and ideals of Christ and rejects the appeals and ideals of the world. Essentially, these virtues, this arete and this knowledge, establish for us in our, in our hearts that Christ is the center of our lives. It is the natural tendency, is it not, for us to put ourselves first? And it is, it is not natural for us to put others or to put Christ first. But when we put ourselves first, when we live for ourselves, that, folks, is a serious break with reality. Because God has not designed it that you or I should be at the center of the universe. Back in the 16th century, Copernicus challenged the prevailing geocentric view of the universe, and that is that the earth is the center of the universe, and the sun and the stars and all the planets revolved around the earth. And Copernicus came along and established by mathematics and a study of the stars that really the sun was the center of the universe, and we call that the heliocentric view. And one of the reasons why his view eventually prevailed is because the heliocentric view had integrity. Everything did fit together. Everything worked. Everything was complete. Everything was whole. Now, folks, God has placed Jesus Christ at the center of everything in the universe. He has not established that you or I should be at the center of the universe. And to try to make life work by putting ourselves at the center of our universe is going to be as problematic as thinking that the earth is the center of the physical universe. 
the whole point of the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins and he was buried and he rose again to provide justification for sinners. And the whole point of the gospel is to pay the penalty for our mutiny against him in placing ourselves at the center of our universe. And the point of the gospel is to pay that penalty and to restore Christ to the central place in our lives again. And it is the gospel that makes the Christ-centered life possible. It's important for us to see that as long as a man lives as if he can call his own shots, pursue his own ambitions, use his time, money, and talents the way he wishes, he is out of touch with reality. Again, he's as off-based as an earth-centered view of the universe. He will disintegrate. He will lose integrity. That's what disintegrate means. It means to lose wholeness. He will lose integrity. He will know something is missing and feel agitated and incomplete and fractured and disjointed and disconnected. A major part of the puzzle is missing. And he probably doesn't know what it is. And folks, this is the source of the frustration and the guilt and the anger and the anxiety and the despair so prevalent today, even among God's people. All of that is happening because human beings created in the image of God are trying to behave as if they were at the center of their lives. When Jesus Christ must be at the center of their lives. People have always searched for that satisfaction. Even the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers spent a good bit of time trying to discover what constitutes what they called eudaimonia. That is, the flourishing life or the life worth living. What is a life worth living? They bantered that about a great deal. And they had all kinds of ideas for that. Aristotle, some years after those men concluded that eudaimonia was possible only if a person possessed a certain kind of character and if he was using that character for the benefit and the good of other people. Now that's as far as he could go because God was not in the picture. And unfortunately, true contentment was out of reach for Aristotle and anyone else who leaves God out of that picture. Because true contentment and usefulness to others cannot be achieved by any human being who lacks integrity, who has not placed Jesus Christ at the center of everything he is and does. And I guess a caution is in line for us here, because it is very easy, is it not, when we are discontent and when we are feeling fragmented and frustrated and disconnected, to think that the reason we feel that way is because something has gone wrong outside of us. Our parents or our boss or our children or somebody isn't treating me the way I need to be treated. Or maybe it's because of physical limitations being placed upon me or government rules or school policies or family standards or whatever. And the reason I, I'm not feeling real up about things is because of these, this stuff imposed upon me. That's not the reason for the discontent. The reason for the discontent is the self-centeredness of our lives. God never designed for a self-centered life to work right. 
it's always supposed to feel disconnected and disintegrating. This incompleteness in the soul, this discontentment is especially dangerous in a culture like ours where worldly means to personal pleasure are so readily available for everyone. We live in an affluent culture. And we can, we can mainline experiences nonstop to try to plug this God-centered hole in the middle of our soul. That can't happen as readily where there's not a great deal of affluence. And rather than repent and trust, many believers turn to the world for their satisfaction and their pleasure. Well, God predicted that it would be this way in the end times. In fact, Paul wrote down under inspiration in 2 Timothy 3 that at the end of times that men would be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Our culture does not, does not promote commitment of any kind except commitment to yourself, of course. And I would say that no one is uncommitted. Everybody's committed to somebody, either to ourselves or to the God of heaven. In fact, as our culture disintegrates more and more as God is left out of the picture, we are seeing an, an increasing rise in the unfaithfulness of people, even in the workplace, to stay at a job and to do a good job. Our culture is teaching that you just have to be committed to yourself. You don't have to have any commitments to anyone else. And our culture is on a serious self-destructive course as it breaks with reality. Because when everyone acts as if his planet is at the center of the universe, there are going to be a lot of collisions with other planets who also think they are at the center of the universe. Mark Bertrand speaks to this issue in his excellent work on developing a Christian worldview. He says, the twin principles that tend to govern our daily existence are Minimize suffering, maximize pleasure. If you could study an inventory of your behavior over the past week, a log of decisions and actions, you would find that the motivation for most of the things you do is either to avoid pain, discomfort, and awkwardness, or to achieve happiness, excitement, or pleasures. These impulses do not require a great deal of introspection. They come naturally. While the act of avoiding pain or seeking pleasure may be faultless, they're not wrong in themselves, he's saying. The philosophy of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain is not. As a belief system, and I would argue that it is by and large the belief system of most people, and he's including Christians here, whatever philosophical professions they make, it elevates as ends two experiences we are intended to absorb in passing. There are times when virtue demands that we experience pain. There are times when doing right means foregoing pleasure. Christian wisdom differs from that of the world in that it treats as means what others seek as ends. The end for a Christian is neither pain nor pleasure, but Christ. If to serve Him we must suffer, it is good. If in serving Him we find pleasure, it is good. But pain or pleasure aside, our lives are dedicated to service 
And he's speaking of service to Christ. You know, our culture assesses the value of something not by the rightness or the wrongness of it, by, but by how much pleasure something brings to us or how much suffering it brings to us. And everything is evaluated by that pleasure principle. All kinds of relationships, whether they be with friends or family or our entertainment options or the churches we attend or the colleges we go to or the jobs we work, all of that is evaluated based on how much pleasure it brings me and I will abort that relationship or that commitment if it doesn't bring me a lot of pleasure, if it brings suffering to me. That's the ethic of our world. Well, what is the starting line of this commitment to Christ? As we have seen again and again, the right relationship with God begins, therefore, with acknowledging the centrality of Jesus Christ in all things. The self-centered believer must repent of his unbelief and rebellion. When he's been living for himself, he's living in unbelief and rebellion. And then begin the process of integrating all of his life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The men and women that God used all throughout the scriptures and all throughout time since the scriptures were written, were people who were wholeheartedly committed to God. We, I want to just go over a couple of examples for you. Moses was a wholehearted leader of the children of Israel. While he was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law on those two stone tablets, the children of Israel, under the direction of Aaron, were worshiping at a golden calf. And Moses came down and drew a line in the sand and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And unfortunately, only one tribe, the tribe of, Le- of Levi, came over on the side of right. There were just a few people who were wholeheartedly committed to God. And, and Moses was calling for that public commitment to God. Joshua did the same thing. When he was about ready to uh, leave the children of Israel and go to be with the Lord himself, he was making a farewell address to the people at Shechem. And he reminded them of God's deliverance from pre-Abrahamic paganism and from the Egyptian bondage. And he reminded them that in this good land of Canaan, They would soon forget God unless they continually renewed their commitment to God. And he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. And again, he drew a line in the sand. And all the people with one voice almost vowed that they would serve God. But history reveals they fell by the wayside pretty quickly. Elijah was a wholehearted prophet. In 1 Kings 18, we have that account of the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And after those, after God had, uh, before God consumed that sacrifice, Elijah called out and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. And the tragic thing is, the scriptures say, the people answered him not a word. They weren't willing to be committed. And then we've already seen in 1 Samuel 17, David's wholeheartedness before Goliath. How was that fueled? David is an interesting man to to study because there are many chapters in the historical books about David. And then, of course, we have all of the Psalms. 
And most of those psalms were written by David. David fueled his commitment by delighting in the words of his God. Psalm 119 is a marvelous passage to study. And herein is a secret that we've already discussed, and I cannot say this enough. The development of a Christian character and the subsequent usefulness for Christ that will come out of that character. These are dependent upon saturating our minds with the words and the ways of God. We must be people of the word. We must know his word. We must live his word. And I would encourage you to take Psalm 119 sometime and use whatever you use to highlight your Bible, a, a yellow marker or um, colored pencil or a, or a pen or something. And every time you see in Psalm 119 the words, I will or I shall highlight them, mark them. Notice how, how often David commits himself to God and said, I will keep thy statutes. I, you teach me this and I shall walk in your ways. Now, did David do it every time? No. But you won't get anywhere if you don't have any commitment. And sometimes some of us will say, well, you know, I don't want to say all that. So I keep failing. Well, David did too. That doesn't keep you from commitment. You just keep coming. I, you know, I was, I, I mentioned in the, one of the sessions previously about trying to learn how to run that two miles in 12 minutes. I didn't make it a lot of times. But you won't ever make it if you don't keep going after it. And we need to be committing. We need to be saying, I will do this, Lord. With your help today, I shall do this. Are we going to fail? Of course we're going to fail. Then what do we do? We repent. We get back on track. And in contrast to these few wholehearted examples, the scriptures are full of double-minded people. The children of Israel, generally most of most of their uh, existence in the Old Testament and even in the New. And individuals all throughout the Scriptures who were not wholehearted and we see the decline in their lives and the disintegration as they experience great frustration and anger and sin and all kinds of other things. Nothing illustrates the nature of this commitment better than the institution of marriage. Just think with me about how some, sometimes these relationships uh, begin. Here is a couple who may be at, at a Christian university or maybe at, um, at, at their workplace or in their church. They notice each other and they start spending a little bit of time with each other. And they learn as they talk that they have some mutual interests. And they learn that they really do enjoy each other's company. And, and the things they learn about the other person really delights them. And eventually they begin spending a lot more time together and they enjoy long walks and talks in the park and they, they may sit for a long time at their favorite coffee shop and just talk on and on and on and it's, and it, and, they, and they're fascinated with each other and they enjoy that time together and they freely share with each other the milestones on their personal spiritual journeys. And they share with each other what God has done for them in the past and what answers to prayer they've had and what promises He has fulfilled and what victories they have seen in the Lord. And they share with one another what they are seeing happening in their lives right now and what God is teaching them out of the Scriptures. And they, they share that with the other person. And they regularly pray together and support each other in their challenges at work or at school or in their families. And eventually, they become best friends. And they cannot even imagine life without the other person. And as they continue that relationship, they resist 
the normal temptations to express affection sexually. And they commit themselves to honoring God by maintaining their purity verbally and mentally and physically. And they invade each other's dreams at night. And when they wake up, there is a text message or an email from that other special person. And it's a wonderful way for them to start the day. And it becomes obvious that God has brought them together. And at some point, he arranges a very, a very um, creative way of popping the question and asking her to marry him. And she, and he proposes and she, um, uh, she accepts. And not long after that, they, they march down the aisle and they say their vows and they commit themselves to each other for life. And on their honeymoon, they explore new levels of intimacy and commitment and they return ready to build a life together. And eventually God gives them children who grow up in a home where it is normal to speak of Christ and His ways. It is normal for offenses against another one in the family to be resolved by requests for forgiveness and tears of reconciliation. And it is normal for them to obey authority and to get along with each other. And it is normal for them to help other people And it is normal that biblical principles underlie every decision and every entertainment choice. And family prayer and age-appropriate devotions are normal for this family. Folks, these are the evidences of a Christ-centered home. He's at the center of everything this couple in this family is doing. And most importantly, the children see between mom and dad what commitment really looks like. They see a commitment to one another to the well-being of the other person. Nothing, not even the children, are allowed to come between mom and dad. She does not flirt with other men at work or have a virtual lover online. And he does not go out to lunch with uh, single ladies, other female co-workers uh, alone, and he doesn't maintain contact with his previous sweethearts. They maintain their commitment to one another. They are one flesh, one person, as Paul said, and nothing is going to be allowed to change that. This is how marriages can and should function because all of the planets here revolve around Christ. And it is God Himself that gave this institution of marriage as the picture of what it is supposed to be like between Christ and His church. And this is the way marriages are supposed to function. To be truthful, most Christian marriages do not begin or unfold as I just described it. And the reason is because the participants lack the essential Christ-centeredness in their own lives, both before and after marriage. And they have been more influenced by the worldly culture around them, as is betrayed by their speech and their entertainment choices and their work ethic and their financial decisions and their problem-solving efforts and their interpersonal conflicts. And what happens is that most marriages begin as a, as I say, a tick on a dog relationship. And then they get married and find out there are two ticks and no dog. Both of them were parasites looking for a host, somebody to make them feel better. And neither one of them wanted to be the host. So it's not long before these two ticks go looking for a host, another host. And that is a sad thing. That is not the way God intended it to be. And unfortunately, prospective spouses 
are evaluated too often, not upon their Christian character and devotion to Jesus Christ, but upon how much pleasure they bring to the other person. And it is that pleasure ethic, again, that dominates everything that goes on. Those of you that are married know that marriage is an up-close living at its maximum. And it will self-destruct if there are self-centered people in that marriage. Marriages, unfortunately, began disintegrating before they were even finalized at the wedding altar. Because the individuals involved do not possess the necessary other-centeredness that marriage requires. It's not been evident in their walk with Christ, and therefore it's absent in the bonds of matrimony. They do not possess the necessary component of commitment to another person. Their commitment has been entirely to their own interests. They have no foundation upon which to build stability. They have no integrity. I tell the students at the university, right now while you are in college, you are determining the kind of teenagers you will have in your family right now while you're in college. Because the state of your spiritual life in college will determine the kind of person you attract to marry. And if you're a mediocre believer or worse, you're going to attract a mediocre believer or worse. No wholehearted believer would date you. And so then we have two mediocre people who get married. And they really don't have to be serious about their Christian life. Everything seems to be going pretty well and this this sort of thing. And so they even drift further from the Lord. I've seen it happen again and again and again and again. It starts with mediocrity while you're, a, while you're a student. And then the children are raised in a mediocre home or worse. And they begin having all kinds of problems. And it is amazing to me how many parents start wanting to help have spiritual help in their lives when they watch their teenagers go, go bad. That needed to start when they were teenagers. If you are a mediocre Christian and you are a teenager and you're a college student here and you are unmarried, the best thing you can do for your family right now is become the most God-loving, word-filled, ministry-minded person you know how to be with God's help. You need to develop the essential virtues. And that is even more important than it ever was. When I was growing up in the early 50s, if mom and dad weren't doing a good job at home, and, and my mom and dad were doing a good job, and my mom's here, and I publicly thank her for everything she put into this. My dad's with the Lord. But if you weren't doing the job with your kids, there was somebody at school who would. There's a coach who just wouldn't let you get by with that. There's a teacher who'd wrap you side of the head. There's somebody who'd come along and say, you're not going to get away with that, son. That is not the case today. If the job isn't getting done at home, it isn't getting done anywhere. And young people, that's why you need to become as godly as you know how to be. Because you're going into a world far more toxic than the world I grew up in. And the world your mom and dad grew up in. You need to get serious about Jesus Christ now. This is the foundation. It begins with commitment to Jesus Christ, putting Him center of everything you do. 
the center of what you listen to, the center of who you post as your friends, the center of who you make your friends in real life, the center of everything. Because you will not make it in this culture without that. The idea that self-centeredness will work is as mythological as the belief that the earth is at the center of the universe. Paul gazed upon the cross work of Jesus Christ. And we talked about that when we talked in the last session about love. And he concluded that God did not carry out this blood-stained event to leave his creatures living in their self-centeredness. And we looked at this passage too, 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Folks, it is a height of arrogance for any of us to think that we should live for anybody but Jesus Christ after what he has done. The apostle put it this way, we love him because he first loved us. Everything turns upon the hinge of the cross in the Christian life. It is the cross that should compel us to pursue that arete, that excellence of Christ's likeness. And pursue the knowledge of the person and the work and the ways of Jesus Christ. It is a cross that will compel us to commitment, the groundwork of Christ-like character. So I ask you, how is your commitment to Jesus Christ? Are you living in a geocentric world, a make-believe world where it doesn't really exist that way? You're, you're being self-centered? Or are you willing to live in reality the way God really made it? A heliocentric world physically and a Christ-centered world spiritually. That's the way God wants us to live. Commitment is this foundation of spiritual integrity. And it requires that you and I pursue this Christ-centeredness wholeheartedly in our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ.